Hello, and welcome to The Conversation Weekly. When catastrophes like a pandemic strike, how do we make sure that societies learn and implement lessons from disaster? We all need to look into our own backyard just to see what we can learn. We speak to three experts coming at this question in very different ways. The lesson for everybody anywhere is what we really need is flexibility. I'm Dan Marino. And I'm Gemma Ware in London. You're listening to The Conversation Weekly, the world explained by experts. So Dan, how come you're in New York this week? I'm seeing family and it's the first time since the pandemic started. Feel very fortunate. Uh, And you must be able to hug people and your family again. That must be so great. It's nice to sort of be moving forward and get through the worst part of the pandemic, at least here in the United States. Uh, We also can't help but look back over the last year. Yeah. So however much we may want to get back to normal, there are also researchers actually looking back, thinking long and hard about this disaster that we're still living through and also trying to learn lessons from it. And importantly, part of this recovery is thinking about how to make the world more resilient and limit the risk of another catastrophe. And that's what we're going to focus on in this episode. It's split into three parts. First, using indigenous knowledge to prevent disaster. Second, how even well-prepared countries can be really caught off guard. And third, how recovery can be the catalyst for change. First, we're heading to Australia. Indigenous peoples there have been managing the land to prevent wildfires for thousands of years. Their knowledge has historically been dismissed, but not any longer. Northern Australia is quite different than the rest of Australia. This is Kamaljit Sangha. She's an ecological economist working at the Darwin Centre for Bushfire Research at Charles Darwin University in Australia's Northern Territory. It's a very vast landscape, mostly Swana country. Swana landscape represents, you know, scattered tree cover with grass underneath. It comprises half of Australia, which is about 2.7 million square kilometres. Most of this is outback, and most of this is remote as well. The landscape is flat and open and much more sparsely populated than southern parts of Australia, which were colonised much earlier and where farming and agriculture are much more intense. The north is beautiful, but it's a harsh environment. It's not as uh, friendly as the southern part of uh, Australia is in terms of the climate. It's harsh climate. And people really need to adapt to this climate to live in the northern part of Australia. This kind of savanna landscape evolved over millions of years. Especially when the climate started getting drier and the rainforests contracted. And it's just the woodlands that existed and they expanded with time. As we got into this contrasting wet and dry seasons. And with that expansion, we had more and more fires in the north. Australia is prone to fires. And in the north, large fires are a ritual, coming every one or two years. The worst fires in the north come late in the dry season, which lasts between April and around November. For six months, it's quite dry up in the northern part of northern Australia. So that dryness leads to build up dry grass on the ground. As the rains approach at the end of the dry season, they bring lightning, which can set the land ablaze. Late dry season fires are the wildfires, extensive hot fires, uh, which occur any time from August until 
October, November until we get heavy rains in the wet season. Those fires, when they occur, they will cover thousands of kilometers. The amount of damage those fires cause to biodiversity, soil erosion and all that is huge. These fires in the north also contribute to Australia's greenhouse gas emissions. Total greenhouse gas emissions that goes from those wildfires, they account for 2 to 4% of our national inventory. Over millennia, Indigenous peoples have created their own methods to manage these fires across the savannah. We believe that when people were seeing this fire as a danger year after year, the first thing they adapted themselves is to manage fire. So to manage that fire, they would have done lots of experiments. One of the practices that emerged was to light small patches of fire early in the dry season, between March to around the end of July. At this time, the climate is slightly cooler and there's a bit of dew at night. So when these small fires are lit, they don't go very far. Imagine a landscape uh, with trees and grasses and with some rivers and creeks flowing through that landscape. So when you're putting cool patchy burns early in the dry season all around the country, but in specific places, you create this mosaic landscape where if the fires are lit late in the dry season, they're not going to expand. You know, they'll be contained. This patchwork of small, cool fires, as they're called, create fire breaks in the landscape. And those fire breaks help prevent the spread of bigger wildfires later in the dry season. So putting early dry season fires... With those fire breaks, we create barriers within the landscape in a way that if lightning struck, it does not lead to extensive wildfires. There will be some fires. We can contain them in small areas, but they're not going to spread to large areas. And for Indigenous people, fire has other meanings too. So they farmed their landscape in a way that they could hunt. They could also uh, have fire for their cultural ceremonies. You know, the fire is not just important to manage their landscape. They quite often, indigenous people say that they use fire to clean their country. You know, cleansing is a very important aspect, which is maintaining healthy country. In the past, this early dry season burning used to be coordinated and very well organised. But Kamal says these practices began to disappear with colonisation. To an extent, actually, where people were fined for putting any burns out there early in the dry season. That was happening, uh, say, 50 years ago. But the North is fortunate. Because we have still those elders who have retained that knowledge compared to southern part of Australia, where a lot of that knowledge has been lost due to colonisation and taking over land from people. In the North, people got a lot more access to their land. Uh, For example, in the Northern Territory, 60% of the landscape is uh, managed and Indigenous people have got legal rights to that landscape. And it's that Indigenous knowledge which has been key to a collaboration involving Kamal and her colleagues at the Darwin Centre for Bushfire Research. So it's only in the last 20-30 years since our team been working with fire managers in the north that this revival of traditional fire management has occurred. To understand what helped spur on this revival... Kamal says you need to go back to the Kyoto Protocol. Meeting in the historic city of Kyoto is indeed a milestone in the search for a sound, sustainable balance between its economic and social priorities and the environment and life support systems of our planet, 
on which all human activity and well-being ultimately depend. In 1997, most of the world's industrialised countries agreed to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions to help stem climate change. Australia was one of the signatories, but didn't ratify the Kyoto Protocol until 2007. The importance of managing greenhouse gas emissions became a central focus for the federal government because they need to meet their requirements for the Kyoto Protocol. And that's how managing wildfires became a topical issue for the federal government, and that's how it attracted attention for developing the methodology to manage wildfires. The methodology is called savannah burning. It was developed at the Darwin Centre in a collaboration between Indigenous land managers and scientists, spearheaded by Kamal's colleague, Professor Jeremy Russell-Smith. It can help you to calculate how much greenhouse gas emissions you are going to save by burning early in the dry season compared to having fires late in the dry season what we call is greenhouse gas emissions abatement. So here we account only for nitrous oxide and methane. We don't account for carbon dioxide. This is then turned into something called an Australian carbon credit unit. One Australian carbon credit unit is about one tonne of abatement of greenhouse gas emissions. And it's here where the money comes in. Those Australian carbon credit units then you can sell either to the Australian government under this ERF, which is Emissions Reduction Fund, Or you can also sell those carbon units to private companies like Shell, BP and others. That one ton of uh, abatement is worth about $14-$15. Though the price varies depending on who the unit is sold to. In 2012, this savannah burning methodology began to be rolled out formally in defined parcels of land or projects across the north. Those indigenous land managers taking part are supported through two bits of software – one which helps them track where fires are via a website that's updated every day, and another which helps them calculate the amount of greenhouse gas emissions a small fire early in the dry season could save by preventing a bigger wildfire later in the year. It has led to this innovative carbon economy, which is now worth about $30, $40 million across the north per year. And it has provided jobs and economic opportunities for Indigenous uh, land managers living out in remote communities, which could be about thousands of kilometres away from a city like Darwin. So has it worked? Uh, Significantly. We have now about 30% less fires on those Savannah burning project areas. In addition to generating that economy, you know, where literally nothing was existing before. And What I'm trying to account now for is that there are many other ecological benefits as well, like, for example, protecting biodiversity, water sources, preventing soil erosion. You know, there are heaps of other benefits and actually enhancing people's well-being who are living out in remote communities. Kamal says the success comes from a genuine collaboration between the scientists and the traditional owners of the land. I believe that leadership from Indigenous people is at the core of it because they are the pioneers in this space. They got the knowledge, they got their skills as well. So supporting them uh, with modern technology, uh, because these days they also use helicopters to burn vast, expensive country that they have access to. So that has helped, actually, the way this project has been so successful. Kamal's colleagues are also exploring the expansion of the methodology to projects in Zambia, Mozambique and Botswana in sub-Saharan Africa, countries with similar savannah landscapes. 
but she admits that for now, the same methodology can't be tried in southern Australia, where the vegetation is different, and yet where wildfires have devastated lives and landscapes in recent years, particularly in late 2019 and early 2020. Saturday's soaring temperatures and strong winds fanned hundreds of blazes across three states. Exhausted firefighters powerless to halt the destruction. But Kamal believes there are wider lessons from the project in the north that could be translated to the fire management and prevention efforts in southern Australia. One key lesson for us is seeing fire as part of the landscape, not as something that's dangerous, alien. As long as we understand the importance of fire, we manage it properly, it should be lit by right people at right time on right country, I think we can learn to live with fire and manage our landscape. Part of this is acknowledging that sometimes the knowledge we need to help prevent disaster has been with us all along. In the north here, we got indigenous land managers who had this wealth of knowledge managing fire in the north, you know. And that knowledge would have come with thousands and thousands of experiments over the years. We all need to look into our own backyard just to see what's out there, what we can learn. Kamal Sanger there from Charles Darwin University. You can read a story she's written about her research on the conversation, and we'll put a link in the show notes to that. For our second story, we're heading to Japan. With a few weeks to go until the Olympic opening ceremony on July 23rd, all eyes are on the government's pandemic response. Just one day after lifting a state of emergency in Tokyo, the government confirmed that up to 10,000 spectators will be allowed in the venues for the games. Organizers say they will take proper coronavirus measures to ensure the safety of the games, but calls are growing in Japan for them to be cancelled. All this is happening in a country that thinks long and hard about risks and is very good at preparing for the expected. It's when the unexpected happens that Japan's response has faltered. Liz Marley has a background in architecture, and that's what she was studying when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans in 2005. Officials have begun house-to-house searches looking for survivors from last week's devastating Hurricane Katrina. I really wanted to do something as a student to help out, and then I had a naive idea that an architecture student would be super useful. But I I went to the disaster area and, and volunteered, and then I started to focus my research on housing conditions after Katrina and what that was like for people. A few years later, she moved to Japan to study at Kobe University. She was comparing the recovery after the devastating 1995 Kobe earthquake to the recovery after Katrina. This led on to a PhD in house rebuilding after disasters, and that's what she was doing on March the 11th, 2011. On that day, at that time, I was actually on a survey trip with my professor in China. We were doing field research about the recovery after the Sichuan earthquake. I was in the air between Chengdu and Shanghai at the time when the disaster happened and then flying back to Osaka. I didn't really know what was going on um, at all. I remember it was a really uncanny quietness everywhere around the airport. Like everything was functioning, but everyone was really quiet And in Japan, the news is very accurate. So they don't announce what's happening until it's actually been confirmed. So on that first day, the announcements had official numbers of casualties, but they were only the people who could actually be confirmed as casualties. (laughs) 
緊急地震速報です At the same time, a nuclear disaster was unfolding. Officials there are warning of a possible nuclear reactor meltdown. Fuel rods are now exposed, and if they stay that way, they could release radioactivity and a disaster of unknown proportions. That was the next huge disaster. At the time, the experts didn't know what was going on. The government didn't know what was going on.、Um, the people at TEPCO, the nuclear power plant operators, also didn't know that the reality was that there was a A meltdown that was happening in several of the reactors at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. And that was, of course, what made the 311, sometimes it's called the triple disaster of earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear meltdown, into another whole level of complexity and compound disaster and, and how people's lives were affected. Today, Liz is an associate professor at the International Research Institute of Disaster Science at Tohoku University in Japan's Sendai City, where she studies post disaster recovery. Japan is a country prone to natural disasters. It's located at the meeting point of four seismic plates. They experience a lot of disasters on a pretty regular basis, small disasters, and unfortunately also、um, large earthquakes and tsunamis and typhoons and、uh, flooding、um, and risks. And Japanese people are well prepared through extensive disaster training and education. In school, kids do earthquake drills. They have a little padded hood that they put over their head and practice, like evacuating with their little quilted hat to be safe from earthquakes. As well as all this preparation, since the Kobe quake in the 90s, Japan has built up a body of expertise on how to respond to natural disaster, how best to do disaster recovery. This history from the last 25 years really allowed projects to be improved and to be more sensitive to people's needs, to try to keep people together. In the community、um, to try to provide better conditions. But in the case of 311, the scale was so large that even if the intention was、um, really to help all of the communities get back on their feet, it was really difficult to implement that. After 311, the Japanese government created a menu of about 40 recovery projects, which each affected municipality could choose from. So, for example, Building new public housing for the disaster survivors or providing new residential lots for people who wanted to rebuild their own homes. And one of the projects that was really used on a large scale for the first time is collective relocation for disaster mitigation, which is a way to relocate people who were living in the tsunami affected area. They can sell their land to the government and then move to a higher land. Area. That program, especially, but combined with other massive infrastructure and landscape modification programs, a lot of new seawalls and mountains being cut and earth being piled up and people being moved around. So it really c- contributed to a really large scale change of townscape and what was familiar before the disaster and also the landscape in the region. People offered prayers in the severely affected prefectures of Miyagi, Fukushima, and Iwate. This March, Japan marked the 10 year anniversary of the disaster. 
Liz says that over the past decade, there have been big advances in understanding about how tsunamis happen and what their effects are, and a shift in thinking about how to prepare for them. Before 311, the idea was we can protect our communities perfectly if we make a perfect calculation about the biggest tsunami that might happen, and then we build a wall that's one centimeter taller, then we will be perfectly protected. And what happened in 311 is now we consider that to be a level two tsunami that might happen in 1,000 years compared to a level one tsunami that might happen more regularly in 30, 40, or 100 years. And so the big shift in thinking is we can't rely on just the physical infrastructure. No matter how good the engineers are and how extreme their disaster modelling, there might be a bigger disaster coming that's worse than any planner ever imagined. And so we have to build in some flexibility about thinking about, well, what happens if something bigger than we expected happens? So some flexibility in a combination of strategies, not just relying on physical infrastructure and concrete, but also on education and training and um, evacuation drills and land use planning and multiple strategies. But while there's been a shift in thinking when it comes to the tsunami, Liz is less sure about what lessons have been learned from the nuclear meltdown. In terms of the nuclear disaster, there's still a strong narrative of, well, that was a unexpected, we never could have predicted that, that we didn't think about that. And, and that was just a kind of a fluke, a kind of black swan event. And I think still the the myth of nuclear safety continues a little bit. This exposes a flaw, she says, in the bureaucratic way that Japan approaches disaster management. Japan is really strong at preparing for a repeating event and the same event that can be expected and can happen over and over again. So you can have a manual and you can practice, 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 practice and do the same thing every time and tweak the manual if the predictions get bigger. But that doesn't translate into flexibility of response and flexibility of thinking. She thinks this is part of the reason why Japan has had a mixed response to the COVID-19 pandemic, combined with the government's dogged insistence that everything is under control. At the beginning, when the pandemic was just emerging and we were just finding out about it, I think one of the attitudes of the Japanese policymakers was to in a way similar to Fukushima, create and try to present a myth of Japan being safe from COVID. That Japan is fine, COVID is a a foreign danger. And one of the first big clusters of cases happened on a cruise ship. Which has at least 10 people with the virus on board. And all of the passengers and crew are now going to be quarantined for two weeks. It was docked off of the coast of the Tokyo area. And those cases are still not counted as cases in Japan. So it was really a literal keeping the disease at arm's length, like not letting it step onto the shores of this country to say we're, we're safe. The backdrop to all this has been the Tokyo Olympics, originally planned for summer 2020. The Olympics have been kind of the elephant in the room, even going back to Fukushima. At that time, they were campaigning to have the Olympics. In 2013, just ahead of the vote on which city would get to host the 2020 Games, Japan's then Prime Minister, Shinzo Abe, assured the International Olympic Committee that there was no issue of radiation from Fukushima reaching Tokyo. Everything is under control. We can definitely have the Olympics. He was guaranteeing a kind of safety that wasn't real at that point. 
And it's been the same since the beginning of COVID. Despite concerns about holding the Games amid a pandemic and huge public opposition to it, Japan and the International Olympic Committee are still pushing ahead. Now we're counting down the days, I guess. It's still very much connected to being able to preserve this image that it's not dangerous in terms of COVID in Japan. Japan's experience after both 3.11 and coronavirus suggests that no matter how good and practiced a country is at preparing for disasters, it can still do better. Liz says that Japan escaped relatively untouched from the SARS epidemic that swept across Asia in the early 2000s. This meant that it was less well prepared for the pandemic than Taiwan or Hong Kong. Another factor is that the legal frameworks and the policy frameworks and the structures in Japan for a natural hazard event and a pandemic event are completely separate. So in the case of a pandemic, everything had to be started up on an ad hoc basis. So set up a new committee, get people to advise the government from the beginning. And I think that that's a process that doesn't lend itself well to a situation where what you really want is quick, decisive action. Preparing for the similar event is one of Japan's strengths. And I'm quite confident that the next global pandemic Japan is going to be much more prepared to act quickly and act decisively. But there's a wider lesson here, and it's about more than just the next pandemic. The lesson for for everybody anywhere is that what we really need is flexibility and not just practicing for the same thing, but maybe practicing thinking about how to respond to something that we can't predict. Even countries used to disaster aren't ready for everything. And it's helpful to admit that and to keep preparing for the unexpected too. I think probably many people in Japan would also feel the same way and the people responsible would would also see that we definitely need to keep preparing and keep widening our expectation of what we should be preparing for. Liz Marley there from Tohoku University in Japan. You can read a long story that she's written on the conversation about what Japan has and hasn't learned from a century of disaster. We're taking a quick time out here to tell you about another podcast that you may enjoy. If you're hungry for more compelling discussion about the latest scientific breakthroughs, check out a podcast called New Scientist Weekly. I just listened to an episode focused on the spread of the Delta variant of COVID-19 and some new research comparing the ways that different countries have responded to the pandemic. It's really interesting stuff about countries that took an elimination strategy. Each week, a panel of journalists from New Scientist and their guests discuss the biggest news in science from the environment, health, technology or space. It's a fun and really informative listen. So do go search for New Scientist Weekly wherever you get your podcasts or head to newscientist.com forward slash podcasts. So Dan, around this time last year, some of my colleagues and I here in London made a short series called Recovery via our podcast, The Ant Hill, in which we look back at a few moments when the world had faced massive disasters in the past and how people recovered from them. There's a lot of disasters to choose from. It was really hard to choose. In the end, the ones we did choose ranged from the Black Death to the Spanish flu and the 2008 financial crisis. Sometimes disasters can create a real shift in thinking. Mine certainly changed after the financial crash. Yeah, quite. And that's just what I asked Ian Golden about when I called him up to talk about how the world is recovering from COVID. 
A little warning here, Ian was lucky enough to be in a place with lots of birds in the background when I spoke to him, so you can hear some of them in the interview too. I'm Ian Golden, I'm the Professor of Globalisation and Development at the University of Oxford. Before that, I was head of policy at the World Bank Group. And before that, I was advisor to Nelson Mandela and ran the Development Bank of Southern Africa. At the moment, I'm most interested in how we can make the pandemic create good things and have good outcomes. And that's the focus of Rescue, my new book. Let's look back a little bit. How good have societies been in the past at learning lessons from disasters? The evidence is rather mixed. And what I focus on a lot in the book is how the Second World War transformed the world, led to the creation of the United Nations, of the Bretton Woods institutions, of the Marshall Plan, of the welfare state. But many of the people that lived through the horrors of the Second World War had also experienced the horrors of the First World War. And there, the lessons were not learned. And there was a cycle of the Great Depression, the rise of fascism, and an even worse war. And so the key question for me is, how do we make sure that we do learn from this and don't repeat the mistakes of the past? (laughs) At the moment, we look like we're heading for another roaring 20s, like that of a century ago. And it's very important that it doesn't end in tears uh, as it did then. So sometimes we learn the lessons and often we don't. It really depends not only on leadership, that's important, but it depends on what citizens feel and how they make their choices. And that's why I really believe it's important to be engaged in the debate at this time, to make sure that we do not go back to business as usual. You know, we all want to bounce back, but that's what scares me, because that implies we go back onto the same track that's leading us over a precipice. And we need to do things very differently after the pandemic, whether we will or not, uh, is the choice we now face. Okay, because I guess there's difference between rebuilding and recovering and making a better world and making that world one that could prevent a future catastrophe of the same kind. So your book focuses on pandemics and how actually COVID-19 was preventable because there have been pandemics and epidemics of, of similar nature that we just haven't learnt from. Yes, we certainly haven't learnt on the pandemic front. There have been lots of near misses in this century alone, you know, since the turn of the millennia, SARS, avian influenza, uh, Ebola and others. And it really is a tragedy that we devote less attention to pandemics than we do to the military expenditure, which is a thousand times or more bigger than our expenditure on pandemic prevention. When anyone that knows about these things will tell you that pandemics present a far greater threat to us. Okay. And you've worked in the heart of the international system, and I'm sure with lots of governments and and bilateral relationships. So why are our leaders kind of inherently bad at planning for systemic risks? That's a very important question. And I think there are many explanations for it. One is that um, they tend to be short term, Uh, particularly in democracies. You know, they've got a very short span horizon, two, three, four, five years at most. And so they don't like investing resources and energy in the unknown that might or might not happen. And we've seen that in the ridiculously low amounts of attention that are given to, for example, stockpiling PPE equipment or, or others. I think there's also the fact that they are very strongly lobbied 
by vested interests that want to make money. I think there are big issues regarding the fact that it's difficult to know what to do about pandemics. Pandemics are the best example we know of something that no one country on its own can stop uh, by their nature. No matter how high a wall you build, you're still going to be threatened by a pandemic. And the reason it's so vital that we address them is because it does require coordination. And pandemics are something we need to coordinate with everyone on. A pandemic can come from the poorest country, but increasingly the threat of pandemics is coming from labs, which could be in very rich countries. Most of the high-tech labs that work on the most dangerous things are in the richest countries like the US. And so the threat is really everywhere. And politicians like to be national and local and find it very difficult to be global. And I think that's another reason why we not only need to deal with it, but we need politicians that are prepared to accept that no country is an island. And unless we coordinate with others, we can't have a safe future. Okay. So you're optimistic. Your book is an optimistic outlook of of kind of the challenges that this new world that we're facing brings and and across a, a whole range of different sectors. So how do we make sure that this time that we don't repeat the same mistakes and that we do build back better, as, as some government slogans are putting it. Well, nothing is guaranteed. It all depends what we do. And my fear is that once the pandemic is over and we slip back into the complacency of our normality, and, and we all desperately want to celebrate and see friends and do those things, that, and we should. But it's important that we recognise that if we just go back to the system we had, we will inevitably have more pandemics that could be much worse than this. And we'll have other major crises. The pandemic, far from being a great equalizer, has led to widening inequalities within countries and between countries and increased the risk of other crises of of different types as well, increased the risk of populism and nationalism as a result. There are some very positive signs. What we are seeing now in all countries would have been unimaginable in January 2020. Conservative governments around the world, not least in the UK, doing what the most progressive leftists could never have proposed in terms of government levels of debt. We're borrowing more to cover the cost of COVID-19, including £35 billion on the furlough scheme. We're seeing the extraordinary progress in science with the vaccination. This is the first approved vaccine in Europe. It means that we now can start vaccination. Which is unprecedented as well. We're seeing other hopeful signs like the agreement on taxation. In a landmark tax reform, the group of seven advanced economies have endorsed a minimum global corporate tax of at least 15%. Too little, too late. But this is something that's been worked on for a century that's finally now happened at the G7. Not enough, but that breakthrough would have been impossible in a pre-COVID world. So we're seeing lots of different things happening. We need to harvest the sense of we can change, governments can change, the old orthodoxy has to be permanently thrown out the window, not temporarily thrown out of the window. So it's using the disaster and the crisis as a catalyst um, that continues beyond just kind of the end of this year, but much longer for structural change. Absolutely. And that's exactly what happened during the Second World War. It wasn't after the Second World War that the United Nations was created or the Marshall Plan or the welfare state. It was while the bombs were dropping on the buildings where people were working on these things. So going from that kind of optimistic uh, view of things, you were also a little bit 
wary of whether governments are able to deal with other crises that might be coming down the line. So give me a few that you're most worried about. Well, pandemics are the biggest threat we face. And I've been saying since 2014 that this is the most likely source of a global crisis, both a health crisis and a financial and economic crisis. So that needs to be stay the priority, and that requires dramatic action. It can be done. We can stop future pandemics. There's no technical reason why it can't be done, but it requires a real renewal and invigoration of the World Health Organization. The climate catastrophe and emergency is something which is receiving attention, but not enough is being done. We need to move to zero much quicker. I would focus on the climate emergency, stopping future financial crises, which are destabilizing. There's a big issue on fake news, the cyber system, the stability of it. I worry about antimicrobial resistance as a rising threat. Growing inequality, I think, is a threat to all of us because I think it will lead to rising populism and nationalism and an increasingly unequal and unstable world. You can't solve problems unless people believe they have a shared interest in the future. The difference between pandemics and all the other threats we face is that most of the others don't require the whole world to be part of the solution. A very small number of countries could, for example, create global financial stability. A very small number of countries could deal with antimicrobial antibiotic resistance because New York State consumes more antibiotics than the whole of sub-Saharan Africa. Not all countries have an equal responsibility on climate change. We need the actors that really matter and contribute the biggest share of the problem to be the biggest share of the solution. So on climate change, it's about 12 countries that account for over 80% of carbon and other emissions. And it's often cities and companies that we need to focus on as well. That, I think, gets one away from this knee-jerk reaction that when there's a problem, let's lift it up to the global level and try and get the UN or someone to solve it. And that often leads to an impasse. Most problems can be solved in that way, but not pandemics. Till we create an effective global governance system for pandemics, we will not stop them. So I guess what you're saying is that the experience of the pandemic is kind of unique and it won't necessarily change the way we prepare for other systemic crises. Well, I think it is a very systemically important lesson for us. If we can learn to cooperate to deal with pandemics, I believe we would have learned to cooperate and we'll be much more effective at addressing climate change and all the other crises. In a sense, the others are simpler to solve because a much smaller set of places could account for the challenge. Great. Thanks so much, Ian. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks, Gemma. Ian Golden there at the University of Oxford. The stories in this episode are tied to two series on the conversation. Resilient Recovery looks at how to recover from the pandemic in a way that makes societies more resilient and able to deal with future challenges. It's supported by a grant from Prevention Web, a platform from the UN Office for Disaster Risk Reduction. Conversation also has a second series called Disaster and Resilience, focused on the nexus between disaster, disadvantage and resilience. It's supported by a grant from the Paul Ramsey Foundation. We'll put links to both of these series in the show notes. To end this episode, Julius Miner in East Africa gives us some recommended reading on this week's crucial election in Ethiopia. Hello, I'm Julius Miner, the regional editor of East Africa for the conversation based in Nairobi. Millions of Ethiopians went to the polls on Monday in a time of mounting political crisis. Suddenly, it's not a climate that Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed or his nation of 110 million have wished for. There's war in one of its 10 regions, instability in another, 
ethnic conflict and displacement everywhere you look. Will this election bring any meaningful change? In the first of our three stories, Johannes Gedamo, a lecturer at Georgia Gwinnett College, says perhaps not. But it is his view that the election will confer the government the legitimacy needed to address the country's mounting challenges. The second story points to the issues that will undermine the credibility of this election. But John Abink, Professor of Politics and Governance in Africa at Leiden University, quickly adds that it's better to hold elections now than have them delayed again. In the third story, Mohamed Girma, visiting lecturer at the University of Roehampton, paints a backdrop of fear, mistrust and violence. He sees the election as a huge opportunity for Prime Minister Abiy to correct his past mistakes. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Julius Minor in Nairobi there. That's it for this week. Thanks to all the academics who've spoken to us for this episode and to the conversation editors Paul Keevney, Josephine Lethbridge, Caroline Southey, Sonanda Cray, Julius Minor and Stephen Kahn. And thanks to Alice Mason for our social media promotion. You can, of course, find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, Instagram at theconversation.com or email us podcast at theconversation.com. If you want to learn more about any of the things we've talked about on the show today, there are links to further reading in the show notes where you can also sign up for our free daily email. The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend Marawani and me, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Our theme music is by Nita Sal. And I'm Dan Marino. Thanks, as always, for listening, everyone. <laughs>